All right, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read our text, which is a lengthier text than usual. And frankly, it is too long to cover in one sermon, so I plan to take two sermons to cover this passage, but it's one unit, and so I shouldn't really break it up. We have to cover it in one, uh, one reading. So it's Mark 9, 14 to 29, second gospel, gospel of Mark. When they came back to the disciples, and I remind you, what are they coming back from? They're coming back from the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? The three apostles, Peter, James, and John, along with Jesus, are coming back from that momentous revelation of the glory of Jesus in, um, in the Mount of Transfiguration. When they came back to the disciples, to the other disciples, the nine guys that were not with them on the Mount, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, when the entire crowd saw him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into, a ter- into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Friends, uh, quite a number of years ago, when our children were still in the home, Diana and I attended a a weekend uh, marriage enrichment retreat. And at that time, the the fellowship was sweet and refreshing with, with other couples. The conversations with those couples were spiritual and edifying the times we spent on that weekend alone with God and communing with each other as husband and wife, reviewing our marriage, was they were enriching times. That was the goal of the weekend. It was to enrich your marriage. It was a wonderful weekend. And on the way home, we did, as many of you parents of young children do, we said, oh, we've left our children at home. We need to bring them some gift from our time away. And so we looked to buy our children a gift. And so we stopped at a local marketplace on the way home. And as we came into this marketplace, we noticed that the people were slovenly dressed. Their language was coarse and gruff. The music playing was a jangle to our ears and to our spirits. And um, it seemed as though we were kind of in Vanity Fair with people hawking their cheap 
trinkets. And as we left that place, we couldn't help but uh, relate to one another the contrast between the two environments that we had been in. On the marriage retreat, there had been an atmosphere of peace and joy and purity. People's minds were fixed on spiritual and eternal things. But there in the marketplace, it was an unsavory environment. People were, seemed to be wallowing in the things of earth. But if we were struck by a contrast between the marriage retreat and the marketplace, it doesn't compare to the contrast that was experienced by Jesus and the three disciples as they left the Mount of Transfiguration and came back down to meet the other disciples. There on that mountain, Jesus had radiated with an otherworldly brightness. It was a foretaste of his glorified body and really a foretaste of the glory of heaven. There they had communed with the spirits of just men made perfect. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the bold prophet. There the Lord and those two men at least were enveloped in a cloud representing the divine presence. And it was there that Jesus received that, that affirming word from God the Father. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But as they descend from the mount and they rejoin the other nine disciples, a rude awakening awaited them. From the loving affirmation they got from Moses, Elijah, and God the Father, they came back to the hostile opposition of the scribes. From the peaceful harmony of heaven, they came to the violent convulsions of demonic possession, which was a picture of hell. And from the sweet fellowship of those whose faith had been perfected in heaven, they came back to an unbelieving generation. You could hardly imagine a more stark or striking contrast than the Mount of Transfiguration and what they found at the bottom of the mountain. They went from a foretaste of heaven to a bit of hell on earth, literally. Well, my outline for this passage will be as follows. Jesus ascertains the problem, Jesus attacks the problem, and Jesus assesses the problem in hindsight, Jesus ascertains the problem. Let me read again, 14 to 18a. When they came back from the mount to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him. And he foams and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Well, who are the parties involved in this particular scenario? Well, the scribes were arguing with the remaining nine disciples. The scribes, you remember, were the experts in the Mosaic law. They would have been part of the Pharisaic party. And these men probably would have been sent by the Jewish Sanhedrin, the ruling body in Jerusalem, and they were sent for the express purpose of spying out Jesus. They had no good intentions in any of their interactions with Jesus. And so the scribes come upon the band of disciples who are without Jesus and engage them in some kind of dispute. Now, then we have the crowd. The crowd was either there or maybe it was drawn to the argument that was going on between the scribes and the disciples. So you have the nine disciples, you have the scribes, and you have this large crowd. And then add to that mix this man who has a son who is demon-possessed. You have the son, and of course you have the spirit, the demon that is possessing this boy. So those are the parties involved in this scenario. Now consider the inquiry of Jesus into the problem. 
we see, first of all, how Jesus is welcomed in verse 15. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. That, a word, that word amazed bespeaks a strong emotion. Sometimes it's the emotion of terror. It's the word used to describe the response of the women when they came into the empty tomb of Jesus and they saw the angels. They were amazed with a sense of fear. It could also be the amazement of distress. It's the word used to describe Jesus' emotions in, in the Garden of Gethsemane as he went through such distress in his soul. But here it seems to bespeak an, an a, amazement of joy. They were happy to see Jesus. Perhaps they were not expecting him. And then we see his question and the answer that is given. In 9.16, he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Now, who was he addressing? Commentators seem to think he was probably addressing the scribes. The scribes were the ones initiating the argument and, and, and the discussion with the disciples. So Jesus probably comes to the scribes, whom he knew were enemies, and said, what are you discussing with them? What are you discuss, discussing with my disciples, my, my men? And they're let off the hook from having to answer, because at that point, a man from the crowd pipes up, and he answers the question. Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him, he foams, and he grinds his teeth and becomes stiff. When it says, I brought to you my son, well, Jesus wasn't there. What does it mean? I brought to you my son. Well, it either means that I was intending to bring him to you, Jesus, but of course you weren't there. Or it could bespeak a principle of representation, that the disciples represented Jesus, and by bringing him to the disciples, they were, in effect, bringing them to Jesus. Remember how Jesus said when he sent out his various disciples, if they listen to you, they listen to me. They were representative of Jesus, and by bringing his son to them, he was, in effect, and in a sense, bringing them to Jesus because they were Jesus' official representatives. Now, the description here given of this boy seems to be a clear description of epilepsy. The falling down, the foaming, the grinding, the stiffening out. Literally, that word stiffening out means a withering away. It's the word used to describe in the parable of the sower, the rocky ground hearer who, who doesn't have deep root. And, and as a result, when the mid-eastern sun comes out, the plant withers. And it's the idea of the drying up of bodily juices in the body, which then makes the body appear stiff. It seems to be a clear description of what we know as a grand mal epileptic seizure. And in looking up what that is, uh, I, I learned this, that it begins with a blood-curdling cry due to the firing of a barrage of neurons in the brain that constricts the muscles in the chest. The brain ceases temporarily to function. There's immediate unconsciousness, and that, of course, can lead to a dangerous fall. Following the fall, there is muscle constriction with violent spasms, and what follows is exhaustion. This is a, a real recognized malady called epilepsy. And it's interesting. Let me just read one verse. You need not turn there in Matthew 4:24, where there's a distinction made between a physical medical condition and demonization. In Matthew 4:24, we read, the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. You notice there's a distinction between demoniacs and epileptics, right? 
And so here we have a pretty clear description of an epileptic. This is a pretty clear medical description of that medical malady. But clearly from the text, there's more than just a medical malady. Now, for those who don't respect the authority of Scripture, and there have been many in history, who want to take out of the Scripture anything supernatural and want to give only a naturalistic explanation, they would say, well, this is simply epilepsy. And they would want to dismiss the reality of demonic supernatural involvement. But that's only because they have a prejudice against the Scriptures, and they don't believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God, and they don't believe in the supernatural. But clearly in the text, there is demonic involvement here. There is epilepsy, but epilepsy, it says he, the demon, was dashing the boy to the ground. He was rendering the boy mute and deaf, and they are not symptoms of epilepsy. So how do we put this together? Was it a medical problem or was it a demonic problem? I think we have to say it was both. It indicates that sometimes behind medical maladies is demonic activity. Not all the time. But clearly, this is a, a recognized medical problem of, of, of an epileptic seizure, but clearly there was demonic involvement. Is there a contradiction there? Not at all. We might even suspect that sometimes demons might want to hide behind a medical condition. They want to be anonymous in order to carry out their work. And so it appears to be merely a medical condition could at times have demonic involvement. Now, am I saying that every time someone has an epileptic fit, it's de demonization? Not at all. But we're saying that sometimes there can be a conjunction of a physical problem and demonic activity, as is clear from this text. And here, there is a compound problem. There is the problem of this sad, tragic demonization of this boy. But then the latter half of verse 18 says, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. The twofold problem here that Jesus is, um, is ascertaining. There's a problem of possession, and there's a problem of powerlessness, spiritual impotence in the disciples. And by the way, this probably explains what the scribes were arguing with the disciples about. They would have delighted over the fact that these disciples of Jesus had no power to cast this demon out. They were enemies of Jesus. They would have been mocking, scorning. They would have just been gleeful over the fact that in the absence of their master, they were powerless to cast this demon out. Maybe they were even saying, what right do you have, a bunch of lay people, a bunch of secularists, to try to cast out demons? That's not your domain. So it probably explains what they were arguing about. So Jesus uh, here, what did I call it, assesses or, or ascertains the problem. Now let's go on to see that Jesus attacks the problem. Jesus solves the problem. But before he solves it, he expresses exasperation over the problem. Verse 19, he hears the problem, problem of a demonized boy, the powerlessness of his disciples to cast it out. And it evokes from Jesus this emotion, which maybe we best describe as exasperation. Verse 19, he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Then he says, bring him to me. And commentators differ as to with whom Jesus was exasperated. Was he exasperated with his disciples who couldn't cast out the demon? Was he exasperated with the scribes who were his sworn enemies? 
Were he, was he exasperated with the crowd? Was he exasperated with the father of the boy? I think the best conclusion is that Jesus was exasperated with the whole Jewish generation. Were there times when he was exasperated with the Jewish leaders? Certainly. They're looking for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But did he get exasperated with his own disciples? Yes, we've seen it already in, in, in Mark. Are you hardened in your heart? Do you not yet believe? I mean, the disciples exasperated Jesus. I think we can say the whole climate in Israel was an exasperation to the Lord Jesus. The belligerent unbelief of the religious leaders, the blind unbelief of the crowds, and the slowness to believe in his own disciples, all of that exasperated Jesus. Now, let's make sure we make this comment. All Jesus' emotions were holy emotions. Why? Because he himself was holy, harmless, undefiled. He was the spotless lamb of God. And we, when we see the emotional life of Jesus, he is the pattern for our emotions. Our emotions are often tainted with sin. Even when there's something righteous, there's often something sinful mixed in. Not with Jesus. His emotions were pure and holy emotions. His grief, his disappointment, his exasperation expressed in these words was a pure and holy exasperation coming from his holiness and his holy disappointment with the state of fallen humanity. And so he expresses, he's exasperated over the problem, but then he offers to solve the problem. Don't you love these words? Bring him to me. You say my disciples have failed, they couldn't do it. Bring him to me. Beautiful words. Our Lord doesn't simply bemoan the problem, he purposes to solve the problem. Bring him to me. But before he does, he does what I think, uh, this is the right explanation, he exposes the seriousness of, of the problem. Now, the seriousness of the boy's problem has already been seen because upon seeing Jesus, the demon threw him into a convulsion, literally completely convulsed him. But the father's description was not an exaggeration. Then Jesus asks the question in 921, how long has this been happening to him? Now, why did he ask that question? So often when Jesus asks a question, it's not to gather information, right? Now, when you go to the doctor, the doctor needs to ask you some questions. He needs to gather data in order to come up with a correct diagnosis and solution, right? How long have you been having this problem? What are the exact symptoms? And when does it seem to happen? And have there been any changes? A, a, a mortal medical doctor needs to ask those questions for information. Jesus didn't ask it for information. Why did he ask it? Probably to call attention to the magnitude of the problem. That's what he wanted to do. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. He wanted to illustrate to the crowd, to the father, to everyone around the magnitude of the problem. This was a long-standing problem. It's a problem that goes back to his young childhood. That would imply that perhaps other solutions have been tried, but they have all failed. Vain has been the help of man. This points to the kind of help needed, divine help. And it points to the kind of faith needed, faith in Jesus as the divine helper. And then Jesus expels the demon, which solves the problem 
Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and dumb mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. What prompted Jesus to heal the boy or to cast the demon out was the approaching of the crowd. Either the crowd had grown in number or they were getting closer. And remember, at this stage in his ministry, Jesus did not want to be known as the miracle worker. It would have fed all their misguided messianic notions, right? And so he wasn't interested in, in broadcasting this. So probably before the, the crowd got close enough to gawk at him, he quickly cast the demon out. The spirit is named, you deaf and mute spirit, according to the effect that the demon had on the boy, deafness and muteness. He couldn't hear, he couldn't speak. And the malignant spirit must obey the voice of its creator. But you notice how insolent the demon is. He's got to go, but before he goes, he gives the boy one last jolt. It says literally in the Greek, he much convulsed him, giving a loud cry. The boy appeared to be dead, but Jesus tenderly raises him and he stands up. So Jesus solves the problem. Whereas the disciples failed, Jesus did not. But in the process of attacking the problem, he also teaches a lesson in faith. The father has come to Jesus with a, a, a deep need. His heart was pained by the suffering of his son, as would be ours, and he asks for help. That word help in 922 comes from two Greek words, one that means to cry and the other means to run, and it means run to the cry of those in danger. And what he's saying when he says help, Jesus, we're in danger, we've got trouble. Run to us and help us. The man had faith enough because he was coming to Jesus. He certainly had faith, but he slips out with the words, if you can do anything. That reveals that although he had faith, there was a flaw in his faith. Was it weak to begin with? Or was his faith weakened as a result of seeing the inability of Jesus' disciples to cast out the demon? And maybe he overheard the mocking scorn of the, of the scribes and had that weakened his faith, perhaps. Perhaps it had sown seeds of doubt in him that weren't there before. Well, Jesus corrects him. He said, the question in this boy's deliverance is not about whether I can. That's, take that off the table. That's not the question, whether I can. The question is whether you can believe. And Jesus teaches the lesson that his power is unleashed in response to belief in him. Verse 23, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And to the father's credit, he responds with immediate affirmation. He says, I do believe, help my unbelief. He, he, he affirms his faith, but he admits the deficiency of his faith, help my unbelief. And then finally, and briefly, Jesus assesses the problem in hindsight. As often happens after an incident, the disciples get alone with Jesus and then they get to follow up. And in this case, they, they come to the house and it's just the immediate 12 and Jesus. And verse 28 says, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Lord, why did we fail? 
And Jesus answers, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So, brothers and sisters, there we have the exposition of this passage. And there are things we need to learn from it. And I'm going to make one of three applications this morning, and then next week we'll have all application, because I can't just leave this passage with its rich teaching and just cram it into one sermon. And so there are lessons here we learn about the devil and his agents. There are lessons here we learn about Jesus, and there are lessons we learn about the Christian life. The latter two I will save for next week, but this morning we'll finish up by learning some lessons about the devil and his kingdom from this passage. What do we learn about the devil and his agents? Well, first of all, the devil and his agents will prey upon God's people in times of weakness. And here, I'm not even going to talk about the demon. I'm going to talk about the scribes. The devil and his agents will prey upon God's people in times of weakness. And I'm not talking about the demon. I'm talking about the scribes. What were they doing? They had seen the nine disciples bereft of their master Jesus and bereft of their stronger leaders, Peter, James, and John. The stronger ones were not there. You had the other nine. And they're all alone trying to cast out this demon, and they are failing. That was a wonderful opportunity for them to take advantage. And the devil is an opportunist. In Luke 4.11, it says, in light of the uh, wilderness temptation of Jesus, that the de devil left him until an opportune time. He left him until he had another opportunity, another open door. The devil is an opportunist, and he knows our weaknesses, and that's when he and his agents will move in on us. And here his agents are the scribes. Were they the agents of the devil, well, Jesus said of the spiritual leaders of the Pharisees and scribes in John 8, you are of your father the devil. Of course they were the devil's agents. They weren't God's instruments. They were the devil's agents in coming against Jesus. And like the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour, they were prowling around looking to devour to find occasion against Jesus and against his disciples. And here they found a point of weakness. Ah, the shepherd is away and the wolves move in on the weaker sheep. That's the devil's way. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so I say to you that it will be times of weakness where you will be most vulnerable to the attacks of the devil's host. Times of physical weakness when you are sick, when you're ill, those are times when you were most prone to his attacks. Times of emotional weakness, when you have become emotionally exhausted because of the demands and pressures of life. Remember Elijah, after he had poured himself out in battling the 450 prophets of Baal, the man was exhausted and he was depressed. It was a time when he was vulnerable. And when you expend a lot of emotional energy, those are times of weakness that the devil will take advantage of. Times of spiritual weakness, when you have neglected the means of grace, you have not been in the word of God. You have not been giving yourself to prayer. You have been ignoring the fellowship of the saints, which is something that we need. It's a time of weakness. When you give in to sin in one area, a, and then it's a time of weakness, and the devil says, well, you're already blown it. You might as well go all the way and commit sin to the nth degree. Times of spiritual weakness are times of vulnerability. The weakness of desire Satan knows your particular besetting sin and mine. And it's in that area that he's going to 
find a weakness and tempt you. What must we do? Well, Paul says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. As I prayed, don't be ignorant of his devices in general. There's a Puritan, Thomas Brooks, wrote an excellent volume, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Wow, is that typically puritanically thorough in, in unmasking the devices of the devil. But you need to know how the devil works with you. You need to know your points of weakness, your particular besetting sins. Don't be ignorant of his, his ways with you. Don't be ignorant of the times of special weakness when the devil attacks you. During those times, be especially distrustful of yourself. Be especially alert during those times. And it is those times we need to run to Christ for grace and to strengthen ourselves in the Lord when we are especially weak, because then Satan will especially be the opportunist to take advantage, as he did here. Secondly, the devil and his demons aim to possess people and make them his own. In 9.18, it says, uh, that, that the spirit would seize this boy. Catalambano, it means to lay hold of, to make one's own, to take possession of. The demon's desire and the devil's desire in general is to possess people, to bring them under his power. That's why he's called the God of this world, the ruler of this world. He wants to exercise dominion over people. That's why unbelievers are called sons of disobedience. They are like their father, the devil. He's consummately disobedient, and they live a life of disobedience to God. They're his children. He possesses them. They're his spiritual offspring. They imitate him in their disobedience. They are captive to do his will. Now, the good news for Christians is that we have been seized by Jesus. Philippians 3.12, the Apostle Paul says this, not that I have already obtained it, perfection or resurrection, or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ has laid hold of you. Jesus has seized you. And the devil cannot seize you in one sense. Jesus has already seized you. He has made you his possession, and you cannot become the possession of the devil. But although the devil cannot have us, he will have as much of us as he will. He will try to possess our thoughts. That's why Jesus could say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because at that point, Satan was possessing Peter's thoughts. What are you to do? We're to follow the directive of 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, which says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There it is. How is it that you not let the devil take possession of your thoughts? You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Resist the devil firm in your faith, as Jesus did in the wilderness. The word of God, it is written, it is written, it is written. You want to feed me this lie? You want to tell me this lie? Well, here's the truth. It is written, it is written, it is written. And the more we set our mind on God's things and fill our minds with God's word and, and the word of Christ dwells richly within us, we will not be prey for the devil who wants to possess as much of our thought life as possible. Third thing we see of five is the devil hates people and aims to destroy them. Satan hates God. 
Therefore, he hates God's works. And the pinnacle of God's works is man made in his image. Jesus said that the devil is a murderer. The devil wants to destroy God's works. He wants to destroy people. And here's a vivid picture of that. He was out to destroy this boy, throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the water. His sole aim was destruction of this boy. And if you're one who has not yet come into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, you are still in that kingdom. And I tell you, my friend, you are in the kingdom of Satan. You are a citizen of Satan, and his aim is only to destroy you. He may not throw you down to the ground in an epileptic fit, but he will seek to drag your soul down to hell with him. And you need to get out of his kingdom and you need to flee to Jesus Christ where you will be safe in his kingdom. That's the only place of safety from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. But for you, my fellow believers, the devil cannot destroy you, but he will seek to make your life miserable. And so I say to you, don't flirt with the devil by subjecting yourself to temptations. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Don't flirt with the devil by neglecting the means of grace and saying, it's not so important that I pray, not so important that I read God's word, not so important that I fellowship with God's people. Don't flirt with him in that way. Don't flirt with the devil by keeping worldly company. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Don't flirt with the devil by wallowing in self-pity. Stay as far away from his kingdom as possible. Fourthly, the devil is merciless and ruthless. And don't we see it here? How long has this been happening? Since childhood. And the word for childhood there speaks of a, a child in arms in Mark 721, uh, in Mark 930. I'm sorry. Um, I'm not sure I have that text. But in 728, it speaks of a child who spills crumbs on the ground. Now, we visit our grandchildren, and they're in a high chair. And there's food on the high chair, but there's a lot of food on the floor. You know exactly where the little toddler or the little infant was, right? Because there's food all over. Some of us adults may have that problem, too. But it's a childhood problem. From a little child leaving crumbs on the floor, child in arms. Since that time, the devil has been oppressing him. He is ruthless. He is merciless. He will terrorize the weakest and most vulnerable among us. So I have a word for you parents who have precious children. and The devil will seek to terrorize them from their earliest day. Paul said to Timothy, how from infancy you have learned the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. And that's infancy. I remember one pastor saying, Timothy got the word of God with his mother's milk. How are you going to protect your children from the devil's influence? Teach them the word of God. Teach them the gospel. In the days of their childhood, control their reading, control their viewing whatever, by whatever format, and there are so many today. Control their friendships when they're young. Catechize them. Teach them in family worship. Live a consistent life in front of them. Learn their areas of weakness and temptation and do battle with Satan against them. I well remember my dear wife seeing some of the areas where Satan wanted to get our children. I remember her doing hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil and demons by praying, by having them memorize scripture that were contrary to their sins. And even our unbelieving son today has a lot of common grace 
because of my wife's faithfulness. No, he's not a Christian, and we plead with God to save him, but he's got a lot of common grace because of the hand-to-hand combat this woman did with the powers of darkness against who were out to get that boy's soul. So fight the good fight for your children, parents. Finally, the devil knows, hates, and fears, and is subject to Jesus Christ. That's the good news, isn't it? For all his power, for all his malignity, ah, uh, The demons know him, they hate him, they fear him, and they are subject to him. Back in Mark 1.24, we saw it early on in the Gospel of Mark. The demon says to Jesus, what business do you have with each other? We have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know him, they hate him, but they fear him, and they need to obey him because he is their creator. We have seen that Satan's power is fierce and ruthless. There is nothing like it on earth. We just sang Luther's hymn, were not the right man on our side, our battle would be losing. Dost ask whom that may be. Who is that right man? Christ Jesus, it is he, and he must win the battle. It's not merely a man on our side. It is the God-man, Jesus. He goes on to say, as we sang, one little word shall fell him. The crucial question for you as we close is, is the right man on your side? Is the God-man, Jesus, on your side? If not, my friend, you are of your father, the devil, you're a son or daughter of disobedience, you're in the devil's power, and you're slated for harm and misery in this life and torment in the lake of fire in the age to come. And I plead with you to come out of that kingdom by believing in Jesus. But for those of us who, are, who have Christ on our side, most of you, you have the one who is stronger than the strong man. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You are not ignorant of his wiles. And we have the power over him and his host in the name of Jesus and by the indwelling spirit and the word of God. And we're able to resist him, harmed with the spirit and word of God. Let us walk in that victory. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Jesus, again, we thank you that you are stronger than the one who is too strong for us. Help us to honor you by walking in the spirit, walking in the word, and exercising the victory over our enemy that you have won on our behalf. We do ask in your name.